Welcome to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire, a series that digs deep into the life and works of one of the greatest novelists of all time. Pip's Christmas Dinner Adapted from Chapter 4 of Great Expectations Read by Dominic Gerard. No discovery had yet been made of the robbery. Mrs. Joe was prodigiously busy in getting the house ready for the festivities of the day, and Joe had been put upon the kitchen doorstep to keep him out of the dustpan, an article into which his destiny always led him sooner or later, when my sister was vigorously reaping the floors of her establishment. "'And where the deuce are you been?' was Mrs. Joe's Christmas salutation when I and my conscience showed ourselves. I said I'd been down to hear the carols. "'Well,' observed Mrs. Joe, "'you might have done worse.' "'Not a doubt of that,' I thought. "'Perhaps if I weren't a blacksmith's wife, "'and, what's the same thing, "'a slave with her apron never off, "'I should have been to hear the carols,' said Mrs. Joe. "'I'm rather partial to carols myself, "'and that's the best of reason for my never hearing any.' We were to have a superb dinner, consisting of a leg of pickled pork and greens and a pair of roast-stuffed fowls. A handsome mince pie had been made yesterday morning, which accounted for the mincemeat not being missed, and the pudding was already on the boil. My sister, having so much to do, was going to church vicariously. That is to say, Joe and I were going. In his working clothes, Joe was a well-knit, characteristic-looking blacksmith. In his holiday clothes... He was more like a scarecrow in good circumstances than anything else. Nothing that he wore then fitted him or seemed to belong to him, and everything that he wore then grazed him. On the present festive occasion, he emerged from his room when the blithe bells were going, the picture of misery in a full suit of Sunday penitentials. As to me, when I was taken to have a new suit of clothes, the tailor had orders to make them like a kind of reformatory and on no account to let me have the free use of my limbs. Joe and I, going to church, therefore, must have been a moving spectacle for compassionate minds. Yet, what I suffered outside was nothing to what I underwent within. The terrors that had assailed me whenever Mrs. Joe had gone near the pantry or out of the room were only to be equalled by the remorse with which my mind dwelt on what my hands had done. Mr. Wopsle, the clerk at church, was to dine with us, and Mr. Hubble, the wheelwright, and Mrs. Hubble, and Uncle Pumblechuke, Joe's uncle, but Mrs. Joe appropriated him, who was a well-to-do corn-chandler in the nearest town and drove his own chase cart. The dinner hour was half-past one. When Joe and I got home, we found the table laid, and Mrs. Joe dressed, and the dinner dressing, and the front door unlocked, it never was at any other time, for the company to enter by, and everything most splendid, and still not a word of the robbery. The time came without bringing with it any relief to my feelings, and the company came. Mr. Wopsle, united to a Roman nose and a large, shining, bald forehead, had a deep voice which he was uncommonly proud of, Indeed, it was understood among his acquaintance that if you could only give him his head, he would read the clergyman into fits. He himself confessed that if the church was thrown open, meaning to competition, he would not despair of making his mark in it. The church not being thrown open, he was, as I said, our clerk. But he punished the amens tremendously, and when he gave out the psalm, always giving the whole verse, 
He looked all round the congregation first, as much as to say, You have heard, my friend overhead. Oblige me with your opinion of this dial. I opened the door to the company, making believe that it was a habit of ours to open that door, and I opened it first to Mr. Wopsle, next to Mr. and Mrs. Hubble, and last of all to Uncle Pumblechook. I was not allowed to call him uncle under the severest penalties. "'Mrs. Joe,' said Uncle Pumblechook, a large, hard-breathing, middle-aged, slow man with a mouth like a fish, dull, staring eyes, and sandy hair standing upright on his head, so that he looked as if he had just been all but choked, and had at that moment come to. "'I, I have brought you, as the compliments of the season, I have brought you, Mum, a bottle of sherry wine, and I have brought you, Mum, a bottle of port wine.' Every Christmas day, he presented himself as a profound novelty, with exactly the same words and carrying the two bottles like dumbbells. Every Christmas day, Mrs. Joe replied as she now replied, Oh, Uncle Pumblechook, this is kind! Every Christmas day, he retorted as he now retorted, It's no more than your merits, <laughs> and now are you all bobbish, and how sixpence north of halfpence? Meaning me. My sister was uncommonly lively on the present occasion, and indeed was generally more gracious in the society of Mrs. Hubble than in any other company. I remember Mrs. Hubble as a little, curly, sharp-edged person in sky-blue, who held a conveniently juvenile position, because she had married Mr. Hubble, I, I don't know at what remote period, when she was much younger than he. I remember Mr. Hubble as a tough, high-shouldered, stooping old man of a sawdusty fragrance, with his legs extraordinarily wide apart, so that in my short days I always saw some miles of open country between them when I met him coming up the lane. Among this good company, I should have felt myself, even if I hadn't robbed the pantry, in a false position. Not because I was squeezed in at an acute angle of the tablecloth with the table in my chest and the pumble-chukian elbow in my eye, nor because I was not allowed to speak. I didn't want to speak. Nor because I was regaled with the scaly tips of the drumsticks of the fowls and with those obscure corners of pork of which the pig, when living, had the least reason to be vain. No, I should not have minded that. If they would only have left me alone. But they wouldn't leave me alone. They seemed to think the opportunity lost if they failed to point the conversation at me every now and then and stick the point into me. I might have been an unfortunate little bull in a Spanish arena. I got so smartingly touched up by these moral goads. It began the moment we sat down to dinner. Mr. Wopsle said grace with theatrical declamation, as it now appears to me something like a religious cross of the ghost in Hamlet with Richard III, and ended with the very proper aspiration that we might be truly grateful. Upon which my sister fixed me with her eye and said in a low, reproachful voice, Do you hear that? Be grateful. Especially, said Mr. Pumblechook, be grateful, boy, to them which brought you up by hand. Mrs. Hubble shook her head and, contemplating me with a mournful presentiment that I should come to no good, asked, Why is it that the young are never grateful? This moral mystery seemed too much for the company until Mr. Hubble tersely solved it by saying, Naturally wishes. Everybody then murmured, True, 
and looked at me in a particularly unpleasant and personal manner. Joe's station and influence were something feebler, if possible, when there was company than when there was none, but he always aided and comforted me when he could in some way of his own, and he always did so at dinner time by giving me gravy, if there were any. There being plenty of gravy today, Joe spooned into my plate at this point about half a pint. A little later on in the dinner, Mr. Wopsall reviewed the sermon with some severity and intimated, in the usual hypothetical case of the church being thrown open, what kind of sermon he would have given them. He remarked that he considered the subject of the day's homily ill-chosen, which was the less excusable, he added, when there were so many subjects going about. "'True again,' said Uncle Pumblechook. "'You've hit it, sir. Plenty of subjects going about. A man needn't go far to find a subject. Look at pork alone. There's a subject. If you want a subject, look at pork.' "'True, sir. Many a moral for the young,' returned Mr. Wopsall, and I knew that he was going to lug me in before he said it. "'You listen to this,' said my sister to me in a severe parenthesis. Joe gave me some more gravy. Swine, pursued Mr. Wopsle in his deepest voice and pointing his fork at my blushes as if he were mentioning my Christian name. Swine were the companions of the prodigal. The gluttony of swine is put before us as an example to the young. I thought this pretty well in him, who had been praising up the pork for being so plump and juicy. What is detestable in a pig is more detestable in a boy. Joe offered me more gravy, which I was afraid to take. "'He was a world of trouble to you, ma'am,' said Mrs. Hubble, commiserating my sister. "'Trouble?' echoed my sister. "'Trouble!' and then entered on a fearful catalogue of all the illnesses I had been guilty of, and all the acts of sleeplessness I had committed, and all the high places I had tumbled from, and all the injuries I had done myself, and all the times she had wished me in my grave, and I had contumaciously refused to go there. Hmm. "'Yet!' said Mr. Pumblechook, leading the company gently back to the theme from which they had strayed. "'Pork is uh, rich too, ain't it?' "'Have a little brandy, uncle,' said my sister. "'Oh, heavens! It had come at last. He would find it was weak. He would say it was weak, and I was lost!' I held tight to the leg of the table under the cloth with both hands and awaited my fate. My sister went for the stone bottle, came back with the stone bottle— and poured his brandy out. The wretched man trifled with his glass, took it up, looked at it through the light, put it down, prolonged my misery. All this time, Mrs. Joe and Joe were briskly clearing the table for the pie and pudding. I couldn't keep my eyes off him. Always holding tight by the leg of the table with my hands and feet, I saw the miserable creature finger his glass playfully, take it up, smile, throw his head back, and drink the brandy off. Instantly afterwards, the company was seized with unspeakable consternation, owing to his springing to his feet, turning round several times in an appalling, spasmodic, whooping cough dance, and rushing out at the door. He then became visible through the window, violently plunging and expectorating, making the most hideous faces, and apparently out of his mind. I held on tight, while Mrs. Joe and Joe ran to him. I didn't know how I had done it, but I had no doubt I had murdered him somehow. In my dreadful situation, it was a relief when he was brought back and, surveying the company all round as if they had disagreed with him, sank down into his chair with one significant gasp. Tar! I had filled up the bottle 
from the tar water jug. I knew he would be worse by and by. I moved the table like a medium of the present day by the vigour of my unseen hold upon it. Tar? cried my sister in amazement. Why, however could tar come there? But Uncle Pumblechook imperiously waved it all away with his hand and asked for hot gin and water. My sister, who had begun to be alarmingly meditative, had to employ herself actively in getting the gin, the hot water, the sugar, and the lemon peel and mixing them. For the time at least, I was saved. I still held on to the leg of the table, but clutched it now with the fervour of gratitude. By degrees, I became calm enough to release my grasp and partake of pudding. Mr. Pumblechook partook of pudding, all partook of pudding. The course terminated, and Mr. Pumblechook had begun to beam under the genial influence of gin and water. I began to think I should get over the day, when my sister said to Joe, "'Clean plates, cold.' I clutched the leg of the table again immediately, and pressed it to my bosom as if it had been the companion of my youth and friend of my soul. I foresaw what was coming, and I felt that this time I really was gone.' "'You must taste,' said my sister, addressing the guest with her best grace, "'you must taste to finish with such a delightful and delicious present of Uncle Pumblechooks.' "'Must they? Let them not hope to taste it.' "'You must know,' said my sister, rising, "'it's a pie, a savoury pork pie.' My sister went out to get it. I heard her steps proceed to the pantry. I saw Mr. Pumblechook balance his knife. I saw the reawakening appetite in the Roman nostrils of Mr. Wopsle. I heard Mr. Hubble remark that a bit of savoury pork pie would lay atop of anything you could mention and do no harm. And I heard Joe say, you shall have some pip. I have never been absolutely certain whether I uttered a shrill yell of terror merely in spirit or in the bodily hearing of the company. I felt that I could bear no more and that I must run away. I released the leg of the table and ran for my life. Thank you for listening to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to make a small donation towards the costs of producing them, please follow the link at the bottom of the description and you can make a donation there. Every coffee you buy makes a huge difference. Thank you ever so much, and see you next time.